Thunder Media. Australian businesses being bought by multinationals is not an uncommon thing. Australian motorsport businesses being taken over by world giants? That's something to think about. Motec is now becoming part of Bosch. We hear from the man who started it all. And ironically, Bosch were involved in that initial establishment. Perhaps they didn't know what they were getting into. I lucked on a chap called Brian Scanlon, who was the sales manager for Bosch in Australia. Brian appreciated what I was trying to do and helped me out by allowing me to buy Bosch parts because prior to that, they wouldn't even answer the phone to me. Richard Bendel, the man who was behind Motec, is talking to us today on Inside Supercars and explains how keeping it simple was a key to his success. Generally speaking, anything that we developed, if I couldn't use it, I would assume that the average guy couldn't use it either and was go back to the drawing board and simplify it. Ken Douglas also returns on this week's show to talk about the sale of Motec and we find out a bit more about the 24 hours of Le Mans. Fortunately, with one of our cars one lap down and the other a minute and a half down early on, it didn't work out so good. That's all coming up today on Inside Supercars. I hope you'll stay with us. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel, and we're joined today by a number of people involved in Motec, a company that has just recently changed hands to Bosch in Germany. Joined by a man who has been around this sport for a long time, has made his impact in it in very different ways, and came to notice just recently because an announcement by Bosch that they had purchased the Motec business, which was founded by the man we're talking today, Richard Bendel, back in the uh, mid-80s. Richard, welcome to Inside Motorsport. It's terrific to get you on here, and we'd certainly love to cover not only the recent history of Motec, but your early history in motorsport. Well, it's a pleasure to, to do it, and uh, and it's good to see someone recording um, some of the history in, of motorsport in this country because there's a lot of things happened way before my time and since that uh, just get lost in the midst of time. Anyway, the my original background was as an apprentice uh, toolmaker at Joseph Lucas. I normally used to keep that fairly quiet, but... The reality is I had a, a great apprentice school and and taught me a lot that I've never forgotten and still use. The um, After finishing my apprenticeship, I worked in the drawing office. I then joined a contract drafting, contract engineering company, and I got shipped around all, all around the place as a contract draftsman. One of the jobs I did for about... Six months was Australian paper manufacturers down in Taralgon or Maryvale, the mill, 
And I used to drive my Austin A30 road car stroke race car that I swapped to Tim Schenken for 104 Healy because he couldn't sell the A30. And that, I think, allowed him to go to England because um, the Healy was saleable. And so, and then I would come back Friday night and race anything that I could find on the road on the way back because the roads were a bit different then than they are now. And but during the week, most of the shift engineers down there are all ex merchant marine guys, and I used to go out for drinks on the Wednesday night at the pub for tea and listen to the stories, which I thought were fantastic. So I finished after a year or so as a contract draftsman and did my appropriate to allow me to go to sea on the Australian coast with the Australian National Line, which I did for a um, well, some probably three four years, which included the Empress of Australia and the Princess of Tasmania, which was the hardest working, hardest playing ship that I've ever been on, because um, every night was party night, and um, after I'd lost about a stone over the year. Um, I decided I will join Shaw Savile, an English company, and I worked out of England for some years. Um, I came back and I worked for Eaton Corporation for seven years and then Dan Foss for also seven years, um, generally as a, as a technical sales and marketing. Um, and I'd had enough of the corporate world and... I left Dan Foss and I started a company called Competition Valves and I was making engine valves for just about everybody including the very early days of the Australian Touring Car um, series and one of my the biggest customers was Larry Perkins who was building engines for just about everybody and during that time I was approached by Lance Dixon to ask if I'd be interested in drawing, doing some uh, pattern drawings and machining drawings for two and a half inch SUs as used on the first Maybach. Though the car was crashed by Stan Jones, I think it was at Lakeside, um, Lowood, I mean. And um, Charlie Dean, who was chief engineer of Repco, I knew he had some bits. And then Charlie was pensioned off by Repco way too young and put into a business by Dave Stroke, Sir Charles McGrath. Um, and I used to go and have lunch there once a month in the uh, pub in Richmond with them and listen to all his stories. He lent me the bits of the carburetors. I made a couple up for Lance, and they were absolute pain to machine. And I thought, now, fuel injection has got to be a good thing because it was very early days. And I was trying to find, get a little bit of help, and Bosch in those days were the only people that had anything at all, that, um, but they were not interested in talking to someone like myself. And then I lucked on a chap called Brian Scanlon, who was the sales manager for Bosch in Australia, who was I'd met when I was racing motorcycles way back. And Brian... Um, appreciated what I was trying to do and helped me out by allowing me to buy Bosch parts because prior to that they wouldn't even answer the phone to me. And then Brian Scanlon introduced me to one of the 
um, American guy called Jim Munn, who was making uh, prototype equipment for Bosch in Germany. Jim subsequently became Motec USA. That was in 1989. Uh, I'd met, um, I'd had the original concept in 1985, uh, and the company was Motor Technologies stroke Motec. Um, and I met Jim and well, Brian put us together in 86. Um, and it's never really looked back. I, I, not being electronically capable at all, I had a concept and it, it took, um, I got involved with a, a, another ex-Repco guy, Richard Orbert, and he came on board after a year or so of me paying him as a consultant. And that only lasted a few years, and um, he went his own way. And um, I started again with two guys that had already tried to get into the game, and um, they were technically well and fairly on top of it, but not the way I saw it as practical as needs to be for the market that we expected to be able to sell into. Um, the first Australian Touring Car Championship cars we did were 87 um, and we had a good slice of field there and one interesting part about it, we went to Bathurst and um, we ran into the Haltech guys, neither of us knew of the other um, and we formed quite a friendship with, with Mark Boxall in particular from Haltech, it still remains to this day, um, who you know, helped me out when we're having problems with telemetry, mainly with the, the Dick Johnson cars, because Channel 7 were um, running quite legal um, transmitters for their remote cameras, etc. until race day, and then they had 100-watt afterburners on them and just swamped everything, um, which is another story. But... Um, the, we we went on from there, and, and a lot of people that helped me were the Stone Brothers, both Ross and Jimmy, um, Fred Gibson, who had faith in us, particularly when we invented the rectangular butterfly manifolds. Um, and the personal help you got from these guys, because you were dealing with them on a daily basis, and they understood the fact that you came from that similar sort of background. It, was, it wasn't it was work, it was fun and it was easy. Um, in 99, we started Motec Europe um, and then up to my point of leaving Motec, which was about four years ago, we had 66 employees um, and over that 30-odd year period, I think we'd lost eight staff and I think three became dealers. Um, and we'd grown from... Um, myself, my wife, um, Greg Smith, uh, Alan Murphy, and um, then Ken Douglas came on board uh, as general manager. Um, then the two two guys that um, came in was Tony Whitford and Alan Hines, and we combined the two companies, their company and uh and my company, but we still retain the name Motec. And uh, so 
it, it was interesting that Bosch were instrumental in pretty much kicking off, even if they didn't know about it at the time. Um, we've, there's not many facets of motorsport we haven't in, been involved in, and, um, and I think there's about 230 dealers worldwide now. Um, the company's turning over well over 20 million, and um, it's been all very satisfying. It was a large slice of my life in approximately 33 years, I think it is. But um, it's one that I've made many, many friends. I don't think I've made too many enemies. Um, and the uh, people that we worked with in 1985, we're still friendly with. You've built a company here in Australia for a need that you saw initially, locally, but you've managed to diversify and move it worldwide. Now, I've got friends who have got businesses overseas and they can't get the funding in Australia to be able to launch them overseas and they get overseas and overseas don't want to fund a foreign company. How did you manage to make that next leap internationally? Well, the big problem was while the government had um, methods of um, helping emerging companies, they're not meant for small companies. And uh, it, there used to be, you'd have to get $6,000 worth of expenses before you got anything back. And the fact that in a small company, you could maybe afford one trip overseas. And in those days, it was the cheapest possible everything. You know, cattle class, Fiat Puntos, washing in, in um, six o'clock in the morning at Heathrow, breakfast at McDonald's and um, not eating a lot during the day, that would take you to $3,000. You really couldn't afford two trips even to make the threshold. Um, so you just had to do it the hard way. There was nothing else. And and it used to be sort of first appointment at nine and last appointment at whatever time you could get to, which might be seven or eight at one end of the some part of Europe or some part of um, England. Um, it, when you're established, there were lots. There was lots of help, but there's nothing. For, and for the minor dollars that that would have helped you out and got kicked you along a little bit, um, there was just nothing. And I don't know whether it's changed today or not. But we've self-funded pretty much everything we ever did, including um, we bought we bought our first building and then our second one. And only twice in the history of the company have I ever had to go to the banks. Um, and we've always managed to pay the debt off fairly quickly. Um, but you know, as the company is up until now, we owned all the premises. Uh, we own, owed nothing, basically. But it does take a toll. You know, There's no money to do the nice things of life. Um, that takes years to... Well, with us it did anyway. Maybe there's a lot smarter people around than us, but um, but the fact that we've been there for this long and um, that we've retained pretty much everything we had. But the secret's been, okay, I started with a concept which wasn't universally accepted by the people who are a lot smarter than me, but it worked and it was saleable. And generally speaking, Anything that we developed, if I couldn't use it, I would assume that the average guy couldn't use it either and was go back to the drawing board and simplify it. The um, 
there's plenty of guys who, who are rocket scientists and can make anything, but whether or not you can sell it or use it to the general public is debatable. Um, but we had the best combination of engineers um, at MoTeC. And uh, like in the early days, uh, you know, I used to have to kick them out at 6.30 at night because they all liked doing what they were doing. And they liked the sport and they liked the people associated with it. Um, they, they were enthusiasts. And we had guys with doctorates and guys with double degrees. And um, like I was the only dumb one in the whole company. And um, the, it, as I say, it was just such fun to do it because you're doing it with people with a, a similar mindset that enjoyed achieving things. Um, so I guess in a nutshell, that what I'm trying to say is that, uh, that all I was was the sort of shepherd or the guiding light. The, the brains were certainly not me and I've never claimed that they were. But um, but I had people that had some faith in what I was trying to do, and they trusted me if I said, "Yeah, we'll be here in twelve months." And um, and yeah, it was it's it's been it's been my whole working life basically, and um, and you know I don't regret one minute of it. You went from supplying individuals with equipment, and you were probably doing a lot of bespoke work for each of them in those early days to them becoming a sole supplier for many categories. Is there significant differences in both those models? It's overseas um, categories in particular, like the Australian Touring Car Championship was where we got our, our grounding in, in a production series. And the help that we got, um, there were, you know, there's always one or two guys that are a bit difficult, but generally speaking, you know, they'd say, look, we'd like you to do this or can it do that? And you'd rewrite code or have the guys to rewrite some program and you'd always give them what they want. You'd give it to them quickly. And we used to run schools um, and it was that the people they got what they asked for and they got it at a price that they can afford. And you know, some years later, I was giving a presentation to the, to Cosworth and the chief engineer had about seven of his engineers there and I finished the presentation and he picked the MoTeC management system up and said, if that good, how can it be this cheap? And I said, well, I can fix that up for you pretty quickly. And he smiled and he said, uh, maybe I should re, um, rephrase that one. And um, but I was selling him Australian prices in a market that wasn't the Australian market, so I learned a few lessons out of that. And other guys that um, we we did all the Vauxhall Vectors for uh, Swindon Engineering in the early days, and because John Dunn that that had Swindon Engineering was a partner with the Ryan Falconer in America, who was Falconer and Dunn who were the um, sort of Ford equivalent of Holman and Moody. Um, and when and Ryan Falconer was building, ended up building V12 aircraft engines that had two Motex on them. Um, and you could actually, with these replica P51 Mustangs, they'd actually climb just on six cylinders, which is, you know, we had sort of double redundancy with two units on it. 
anyway, when um, uh, John Dunn went back to England, he, being English, um, he contacted us and we had a, another good relationship with him. Um, and it's all, all done basically on the credibility you gain from other areas because the word gets around. It's not necessarily done just on money or just on contracts. Um, the you know we didn't charge very much for any special work that people wanted because we could guarantee that if they wanted probably somebody else will. Um, there was a few interesting things we we did that um, we did with Alcoa way back where they were testing aluminium liners for. Um, wet liners for for um, motor car engines, and what they did, they had an alpha engine, and they put four different types of aluminium liners indoor treatment on the lines or whatever, and we could run one cylinder rich and one cylinder lean and one cylinder advanced and one cylinder retarded, and so they'd end up using a one four cylinder engine, getting four test results out of it, and these were things that were just. You know, very interesting for me, and and it gave the guys, you know, the, all, all the intelligent guys, some interesting problems to solve on how we can do this and how we can do that. And the and it was a family. We had you know regular dinners and go kart nights, and um, the current owner's wife used to who was working well before she was married. Uh, with us, and she worked side side by side with my wife, and she she was the world's greatest organizer of social events. And in the way you were in the company, you had all these people who were probably making more and more complex and complicated solutions to problems, and then you'd come in and perhaps try to bring it back a couple of levels and simplify it, which, of course, is the famous theory that Galileo was allowed to espouse. Well, Henry Ford said simplify and add lightness. And, you know, people who have got lots of experience in some of the more esoteric areas, they like to use that experience. But unfortunately, someone's got to buy it and they're only going to buy it if they like what they're getting and it does what they want and they, they can actually use it. Um, no, times have moved on. The, the teams have, you know, higher level of engineers now than they ever had. But by the same token, the, the MoTeC equipment never stayed stationary. It always developed and developed. And there were times, you know, we'd introduce new product lines. Um, but, you know, people don't realise there's been two years and probably six guys or eight guys working full-time to get them to market, um, and it, it's we used every well thanks to the overseas sales, the profitability was quite high, and at which allowed us to do that. Um, now, if I had my time over again, I'd probably still make the same mistakes. I'd probably just make them about ten years earlier, and um, the it, it's. It was just someone described it, this sort of job as it's like climbing a mountain of wet clay. You can't even stop and rest because if you do, you slide back to the bottom. So it's continual effort, um, but it's not effort that's that's killing. It's just effort that is continuous. 
you started in a time where it was probably electromechanical, those first units, going to now that's full software. How has computing power and computing ability changed the way you've been able to, uh, you were able to develop the products? Well, the first ones we did were basically, while I had a micro in them, they were analogue-based in terms of the adjustments of typically small potentiometers, and you could tune this part of the curve or that part of the curve or some other part, and plus the compensation and so on. But now uh, you can close loop it. You've got infinitely greater computing power. Um, And the price, when they first came out, they were just about $1,100. And if you if you adjust it for the change in value, it's it's probably cheaper now than it was then. Um, but the the trouble is that if one guy buys it, in whether it be a sports sedan and the Monterosso brothers, they were amongst the first people um, we had uh, in the touring car championship. We had um, uh, Western Australian. Um, oh, I should know him, but no just a lot of those guys gave us a lot of help and a lot of feedback. And and you, you find out a couple of guys take they start winning and everyone um that's the old story, win on Sunday, sell on Monday, but not quite that glib, but um because there is always a lot of work to go. And you know, we had a lot of early adopters, um Barry Jamison up in Sydney Uni Sports then he was one. Um the and and getting people to make small quantities in those days was not that easy either. Um, but I don't think there's, there's now if you really want to do it, you can, as long as the you know the concept you got's not flawed. And then there's plenty of people that will point out what you've done right, and a lot more tell, point out what you've done wrong. But um, but sometimes you know you have to have a take an educated guess. Well, I think that the market's going to want to do this. I know it's going to take me 12 months to do it. Do we do it or do we not? And like we we had the case of one new product we're going to bring in uh, probably 10 years ago now with a a new chip that we'd been given advanced knowledge of. We designed everything around it. We made hundreds of boards. Two weeks before we're due to be supplied, they said, I know it's not going to come to market. And that cost us financially and we just had the scrap boards and all sorts of things, but that is rare. But now um, the problem the problem is getting any chips. You know, the cameras that I'm directly involved in with um, most of the, the um, um, current supercars run um, due to what we believe is, is wars, the, the um, vision chips, are now all being used in military drones, and you can't buy them commercially. Um, some of the, the the chips we use, or we'd want to use, do it have gone the same way. They are just not available. We were, I was using Xtel, a Fentigalli road company, to manufacture boards. Um, some of the some of the components went out to fifty two weeks, and then I got them requoted recently, and now they've gone out to seventy two weeks which is code for we have no idea when you're going to see them. Um, and it's it's brought a lot of people, a lot of companies, you know, to a halt. 
I think Peugeot are now only on the upper level. They're using electronic dashes. And they're using gone back to mechanicals because you can't get the electronics. Um, and this was before the Ukraine thing, but um, um, obviously some people had some knowledge, but there's just nothing available. And that's holding development up of anything that's electronic. When you started making products for overseas and started moving up in the ranks of motorsport, going up through the levels eventually to Formula One, did you have to change your philosophy on how you did business, how you represented the company or how the company was represented? At the upper level, I probably had to wear a tie. But um, generally speaking, you know, I've done three Le Mans 24 hours after the first one, I vowed and declared I'd never do another one because it's not the 24 hours, it's the 76 hours that you're awake. And um, and dealing with some of the teams there, you have to be very careful of the politics. Um, the It's not like Australian touring cars, and even though there's politics in supercars and things like that, it's, it's nothing like you get at, at some of these overseas people who are, you know, like professional politicians in the motorsport come second. Um, the earlier days we did with Cosworth, Cosworth used us mainly on R&D projects. Um, the, we had, you know, they had major companies over there, Zytec being one of them, that it came out here and uh, they thought they'd sort of walk into things here but that didn't quite work out that way but um, and I don't quite know what they do now, I don't don't think they're in our same area but the you know when you pay, they're paying people like a hundred thousand dollars a day to go and prototype a car whether they'll take a Pantech and six engineers out it costs you a hundred thousand a day to do some prototype work at a circuit um, there are those people who have that money, and that's probably not our market. Although the um, a lot of the experimental cars, like this um, McMurty electric car that just ran astronomic times at um, Goodwood, that still runs Motec equipment, and that's a company that money's no object. But um, I just hope they don't blow a fuse on the fan motor going through a corner. But um, the it's just a, it's a different area and it's not the mass market area and you, you've got to dedicate people um, you know, we, we had one case some years ago where they refused to believe that we had any financial credibility because what we'd quoted which we thought was a fair and reasonable price was about a quarter what they were getting somewhere else and we had a case where one major uh, group just changed the rules to make sure they wanted us to put up you know, like a $100 million surety or something, um, which wasn't in the original contract. Uh, but they did that just because I know we couldn't do it. Um, if they come to us and they want to come to Motec and they want it, they would get it. But the reality is pursuing it. Uh, you're better off using the people and the time you've got to produce equipment that's, you know, pursue people that have achievable goals. 
Um, Le Mans classic case, you know, because you're dealing with a lot of small people there. Mm-hmm. Um, we did Mitsubishi for the Formula 3 engines for years, and we only got that job. Um, we had a had a phone call. I'd, I'd done some work in Japan uh, with Harry Kojima, who's been MoTeC man from forever. Um, and we had a phone call one Friday evening, and I think we were sitting around the lunchroom, and, and it was the chief engineer of Mitsubishi, and they were building Formula 3 cars. And they said, um, do you know this engine? We said, well, I said, we know generally it's not an engine we have in Australia, but I know it's a derivative of it. Um, do you think you can drive it? I said, yes, I think we can. And he said, could you come over and test? And I said, yes, certainly. And I said, when would you want it? And he said, tomorrow. So we spent all night making a loom up, and I jumped on a plane there, and um, we... Um, they took me out to Fuji where the dinos were and we had that business till they stopped doing Formula 3. Um, and I, I, I knew that I had a competitor's product prior to us. I uh, said, um, you know, you're using this particular product, well, why have you um, asked us? He said, well, because they've had two years to get it right and they haven't. And, um, and yeah, we had a, a good relationship with them, but... Um, once again, it was. They were, they were, I think they were desperate for an answer. Um, they'd heard about us, and then um, we had. You know, there's more than a few times I've been on the phone all night, from particularly from Japan to the engineers, because I go and see a triple rotor um, for Mazda Speed and find out it's got three spark plugs in it, each rotor chamber, not two. And But they didn't tell me that until I got there. And so between backwards and forwards on the phone all night, we actually got it going and everyone was happy. And uh, and I think they appreciated the effort that went into it. But, but we were always flexible enough to do that. Richard, that story sort of reminds me of a, famous moment I, I was at a Sydney Motor Show luncheon when the uh, head of Honda was asked if he'd like to record a message for Jack Brabham celebrating his 40th world championship or something or you know 40 years of world championship mm-hmm. or something. and Mr. Honda said why do you want me to record a video I said well because we want to present that at the Sydney Motor Show oh no I will fly down there yeah. and it's that thing where so many Australians will be unaware as to the impact that Jack Brabham and Ron Toronac made on the Honda Car Company. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> extraordinary thing. Yeah, I, and I'm sure you, you've had the same impact in the world of, of motorsport and motoring. I uh, can only say that for many tens of thousands of people around the world who've felt the impact of Motec, that I, I'm very grateful to have known you and uh, over a long period mm. of time. And how are you satisfying any competitive urge you have now? Because I do know that's there. Well, we're still. I stopped driving about eight years ago, nine years ago, and I realised that Daytona was getting faster than me, and um, so we we ran that. We ran a Viper in the twelve hour, and and since then I've got involved with this Bulgarian car called a Sin, and I saw it at the PRI show three years ago, and I knew of it but knew nothing about it, and. I thought, mm, this ticks a few boxes. It's got um, LS engine, the same as we run in the Daytona. It's um, carbon body, 
It runs Motec Standard. It runs an Albans Transaxle from Ballarat. And what really did it for me, it has a steel space frame, which means if it gets bent, I can fix it. And and um, anyway, um, I liked the car. The guy seemed fine. And um, the, so that night I rang the Motec Europe, um, Peter Jackson that was running Motec in England, and asked, you know, what, what's this guy like? Because he sold him the Motec stuff. And he said, great guy to do business with. He listens to what you say, and he pays his bills on time. And he said, as a matter of fact, I just got off the phone to him. He's asking me the same thing about you. And um, so the next day I went back and said, I'll buy it. And um, and then we went out for dinner that night. Uh, and during the course of conversation, he said, would you be interested in being a dealer for the SIN cars in Australia? And I said, well, there's no reason why I wouldn't. But I'll tell you right now, we're not going to get rich doing this. And he said, I'm already rich. I don't need any more. I do this because I like doing it. And I said, well, I can deal with you. And he's been true to his word. He's a major BMW dealer for, for Bulgaria. And I said, where did the name SIN come from? And he said, well, my wife said the amount of money I'm spending on this car is a SIN. And... Um, so that's where it came from, and he's, he's built, at that time, he'd built about 60 cars, either road cars, track cars, or GT4 cars, a homologated GT4s, and we've been running that. We won the Victorian sports car title last year, and we're leading it this year with Ben Shoots driving, and we'll possibly run the 12-hour in February next year, um, assuming we can get an entry, but, um, but that's... You know, that's like any race car. You're always trying to make it better, and and not to mention always maintain, you know, maintaining it. But so that occupies a good slice of my day. All right. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for telling us of uh, tales from the past of uh, Motec and beyond. Um, I congratulate you on all your success, and look forward to when uh, I can catch up with you at a race meeting again. Um, well, greatly appreciate your time and telling us this. No, look, as I say, I, I've never worked a day in my life. <laughs> well, for someone who hasn't worked very well, you've done a very good job at not working. Yeah. All right. No, it, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Tony. This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Quality Racing Components, home of Black TI bolts, kingpins, studs and torsion stops. Check out their full range today at p1australia.com. We're joined by a man who has uh, well and truly earned his uh, his stripes in the game of motorsport in the worldwide sense. Just back from Amman's, about to head off to Monza. Ken Douglas, welcome back to Inside Motorsport. Uh, thank you very much, Tony. Now, your name came up to Craig and myself when we were looking and noticing that there was this announcement made by Bosch that uh, the Motec group, as such if it is, had been acquired by that organisation. Now, Bosch, as we all know, is an enormous company. Uh, worldwide, it has been for a long time one of the big names in the sport. And the purchase of Motec, while you've been out of there for some 20-odd years, um, some of them not so odd, of course, but... Um, it, it, it's an amazing thing that this has occurred. Yeah, it is, and it's really a credit to Motec. Um, as you say, Bosch is a massive company, 
and they wouldn't be doing this unless uh, Motec was of substance and you know had something to offer them. So, Ken, you were obviously involved in the early days of Motec, last century, so to speak. There's an enormous spectrum uh, that Motec works over. It's not just in one particular sphere. It's not just the electronics of the car, but it's also in other parts as well. Yeah, exactly. The electronics are the basis of it, obviously. The started off with engine management systems, as you know, and diversified into uh, data acquisition and then power control modules and you know, all sorts of other things that you need nowadays, um, but always to an extremely high level. Uh, and that was always Motec's competitive advantage, that it could produce a product that was world-class and, uh, you know, without having to have the costs that were associated with some of the competitors. Business did change hands recently. Of course, Richard Bendel was the man who started the organisation and you worked closely with him for many years. Richard had stepped aside from the business a matter of three or four years ago, I understand. Yeah, exactly. Richard and I still talk on a regular basis. Um, and yes, as you said, Richard was the founder. It was Motec was his idea in the first place and he brought all the people together to make it work and then those people sort of moved it on. Uh, from his vision and, and with him involved. Uh, but, yeah, he was at an age where he had other things that he wanted to do. And, um, yeah, so he had stepped away from the business. So selling it on was sort of logical from his point of view. There, there are many people who still work in the organisation who I know through my experience of the 20-something years around motorsport. And one of the things that uh, is uh, not unique but is uh, is rare um, is the incredible uh, loyalty that the staff have, and obviously that goes both ways, because they had a very low turnover in, in all the uh, 30-something years of the business. Yeah, I think so. Um, they, Motec always went for good people uh, rather than you know trying to find whoever could do the job. They went for high-quality people and then tried to maintain them. And, uh, uh, and if you want to work in that environment and in, in Australia, and probably a military context might be the only other option, uh, but certainly that's it's a unique little niche if you're into that sort of thing. <clears throat> and it is quite intellectually stimulating because you're developing products which you know are going to be put up against the best in the world, and you know, that's, that's quite an incentive uh, to, to do that sort of work. When Richard came to you, did you immediately see the opportunity that he had, in, he had investigated and wanted to start in? Well, it was it was sort of early days. Richard, had, um, working with a couple of electronics engineers, had built like as I said, a world class product for the time, and I'm talking early to mid 1990s. Um, and I got involved initially because I was a competitor and using their system, but I was extending some of its capabilities on, and just started working with them, and then. Uh, my interest was data acquisition particularly, but even though I did engine management also, uh, and we sort of pushed ahead in that direction, and the company built and we added extra products that were complementary to that. Um, so Richard's vision was always the core of it, and then we could sort of expand that on uh, in that area as time went on. How did you see the growth, and was it one of those startups where it immediately had a bang or was there a, a lot a, like a long period before people started to understand mm -hmm. what you were even trying to offer them 
No, it was pretty well accepted early on. Um, it went through a few iterations of product which were before my time. Uh, like the initial product was what's referred to as the Motex screwdriver, which was literally adjusting the mixture strength by turning little rotary potentiometers. Um, and that was the initial one, and then it moved on to different um, fully electronic versions and full, and programmable. But no, it was always understood Um and it, even at that stage, it was competing against the Zytex and Bosch control units of the world, uh, but it was offering something that, that, as a price point, was much lower. But more importantly, it, it was of equal function, but so much easier to use, in my opinion. Naturally, the world caught on to the advantages of the MoTeC product. Yeah, and, and again, that was Richard. He pushed... Uh, the export side of it, he um, he knew that it was a good product, so he pushed and established dealerships at that stage in America, Japan, and in Europe. And a couple of them went through a couple of iterations, but wound up with good people uh, pushing the product more widely. Uh, and again, it fell into markets where people looked at it and said, oh, actually, this is a good thing and we want to use it. When you look at how wide and two wheels, four wheels, it, it, it hasn't really mattered what the uh, control needed to be. The team has been able to adapt it to all requirements. Yeah, very much so. Uh, a lot of it was um, the specifics were we'd have dealers or people in certain areas that were doing interesting things and we'd get involved with that and adapt what we had to that or build a totally new product which then extended the capabilities. But it was always not so much uh, someone's got a, a 10-cylinder engine and we've only been doing V8, so we'll build a 10-cylinder engine management system. It was always an extremely flexible system that could handle a lot of different things. Um, and flexibility was built into each successive iteration. Um, like In the early days, the the actual firmware, the, the, the core code was updatable. So it, it wasn't that you bought a 1995 unit and that's what you had forever. It could be updated and therefore 10, 15 years later, which is an eternity in electronics, what you bought was still relevant, usable and top end. Was the electronics far in advance of the capability to plug things into it? Um. A lot of the what what we now use, like uh, CAN networks and uh, various high-speed data, talking to different things and network systems didn't exist in an automotive um, sphere at the time. Um, <clears throat> so as they started to come onto the market, Motec sort of jumped onto them reasonably early. So as the capability evolved in hardware, the software was there um, to support it. And I guess finally, how long is... 23 hours, 59 minutes and 50 seconds at Le Mans when things go wrong 10 seconds into an all-day race. It's not good. It's really not good. Um, yes, I, I'm doing some work uh, on race strategy for uh, Belgian team WIT, which is a top-rate team, and we just had a bit of an unfortunate Le Mans race. Uh, which uh, started well from pole position and ended not so good when we had a little um, vehicle interface issue quite after the start of the race. Is there any strategy to come back from two, three laps down at Le Mans? Speed. That's all you've got. If you've got car speed, 
you can do little things with when you pit and and over there they've got slow zones so you can manipulate them and they help but um uh, it's sort of like the nurburgring 24 hour um a gap to the leader is a death sentence and it's really hard to get it back you can sometimes but you, you need a fair bit of luck and fortunately with one of our cars one lap down and the other a minute and a half down early on it didn't work out so good well ken i hope that uh, your next trip in a couple of weeks time heading to monza first yeah so um I've got uh, World Endurance LMP2 and then three weeks after that I've got Spa 24 with Audi. So uh, yeah, they, they should be great races. I haven't been to Monza before, been to Spa a few times, but looking forward to both. We hope it's a far more enjoyable, successful and entertaining time for you. Thank you so much, Ken, to talk about Motec and your early days in full-time motorsport. My pleasure. Thank you. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.